Welcome, welcome everyone to Maximus Call-In Radio Show. And this is actually our 50th episode, which I'm really proud of. Uh, we were away for a couple weeks for the holidays, but really glad to be back in action. This is a weekly call-in radio show that we host every single week, Thursday, 6 o'clock Pacific time. And I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and psychiatry professor, and I'm also the CEO of um, MaximusTribe.com, a consumer telemedicine company that helps men safely and effectively double their testosterone levels. Um, this is a call-in radio show. Uh, if you ever listen to, you know, like the uh, old school radio shows, uh, Dr. Laura, Dr. Phil, uh, all right, there's so many uh, uh, psych doctors out there. Uh, but this one is, is particularly focused um, on men's health. Um, I have a particularly strong background in uh, nutrition, exercise, sleep, focus, and relationships. So if you have any questions related to optimizing your health and your performance, happy to answer your questions or coach you through anything. Um, and also talk a little bit about uh, hormone function as well. Um, so every show we start out with a weekly unpopular opinion, uh, and I usually dive into some interesting topic or research. So this week's unpopular opinion is that fish oil is a very effective supplement for brain health, but it's not an effective supplement for boosting testosterone. So I wanted to actually share the results of a pretty interesting study that was published, uh, pretty recently, um, November, 2020. Uh, called Dietary Supplementation with uh, DHA-Rich Fish Oil, Increases Circulating Levels of Testosterone in Overweight and Obese Men. So this was a study that was done um, out of uh, uh, actually New South Wales, Australia, uh, in which a, a nutraceutical research program was looking at whether fish oils, which are high in something you may have heard of, which are omega-3 fatty acids, uh, there's two particular types of uh, omega-3 fatty acids. There is DHA and EPA. Now, typical fish oils that you find on the supplement market uh, usually contain these two components in relatively equal proportions. What you're seeing now in the market are what are these sort of DHA-rich or high DHA-enriched fish oils. They basically like filter the fish oil in a way so that it's higher in either DHA or EPA because these have sort of unique benefits um, and depending on why you're taking the fish oil, like a lot of people, for instance, actually take a prescription form of fish oil in order to improve their lipids, you may want more of one or the other. In this particular study, they enriched it to be very high in DHA. So they gave them actually a pretty high dose as well. It was 860 milligrams of DHA and 120 uh, milligrams of EPA. So um, you know, uh, at least a five times to one ratio of DHA to EPA. And the comparison group, uh, the control group, uh, was the uh, equal amount of calories, uh, just corn oil. Um, had them take it for 12 weeks, and then they looked at um, the different blood markers uh, in terms of what it did for them. Now, here's the interesting finding. And this is why I really think the interpretation of science is really important. If you actually read the headlines or even the abstract um, of the paper, which is publicly accessible, I actually put it on my Twitter account. You can check it out at, at Dr. Cam Maximus. Um, it says, and I'll read the last, um, uh, one of the last lines is, DHA enriched fish oil supplementation increases testosterone levels in overweight and obese men. So you read it and you're like, oh, these scientists says it works. And here's the thing. It does in terms of statistical significance. Statistical significance simply means that there's a greater, 90, greater than 95% probability that this finding is true. Meaning if you ran this study again 100 times, 95% of the time, you'd find the same effect. So I think we can relatively reliably say, and this study was done in 61 people, that the finding is robust. Meaning that, like I said, 95 is a 95% probability that it's true. Now, statistical significance, however, is not the same thing as effect size. Effect size is actually a much more important marker, which is, okay, it's a reliable effect, it's probably true, but does it actually make a difference that's meaningful? Um, and I actually went and looked at the full paper, which most people don't have access to because I'm a clinical professor and so I have access through my medical school. So I looked at the full effect and I actually found that the increase in testosterone 
was um, 1.95 nanomolars a liter, or if you're more um, uh, familiar with American units, because we all like to do things differently in the US, it's about a 56 nanogram per deciliter boost. So to give context on what does that actually mean, right? 56 point boost. Uh, most guys have a testosterone, total testosterone level of somewhere usually in the 400 to 600 range. The lowest end being about 200, uh, 200 to 300 in which you'd be considered actually clinically deficient. And then high levels would be around 1,000, maybe even up to 1,200 if you're a healthy, young, athletic male. So uh, if we just assume the, the median is about a 500, so that would mean that the folks in this study went from about a 500 to a 556 level which is essentially an 11% improvement. And as I said, if you're a frequent listener of the show, an 11% improvement in your testosterone levels is not very clinically meaningful, meaning that if you increase your testosterone levels by 11%, you probably wouldn't even notice or feel a difference. Um, another analogy that may be helpful is um, getting about an hour's difference of sleep, meaning if you boosted your sleep from let's say seven hours a night to eight hours a night, you'd get about a 10 to 15% increase in testosterone levels. So it's actually no more than what you'd get from slightly improving your sleep. And like I said, you probably will not feel a difference. In fact, I would probably say an 11% boost is probably the amount of variability that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. Like if I measured your testosterone levels every single morning, it would probably go up and down by about 11%. So that's why I say, uh, even though the, the paper said it does increase levels, it just doesn't increase it very much. So as a scientist, we'd say this effect size is rather small. We really get excited when we see an effect size that's medium or high. Um, and to give some relative context of what that would be, I always say that unless it's a 50% improvement in testosterone levels, it's not really clinically meaningful. You're not gonna make, uh, you're not gonna feel the difference in your day-to-day -day functioning and your normal life. So with uh, our protocol, in which we actually use a prescription pharmaceutical oral medication, which is very effective, we see increases on the order of 50 to 150%. So relative to this fish oil, we're talking about a five to 15X higher improvement. And so something that increases levels five to 15X more than fish oil, or uh, uh, just not comparing it to fish oil, increases your levels by about 1.5 to 2.5x, or another way of putting it, most guys essentially double their testosterone levels on our protocol. So that same guy that I was talking about, who starts out with a testosterone of 500, would actually go up to typically around 1,000. So they're going from average to alpha uh, levels, if you wanna kind of use that, that terminology, um, and moving from probably around 50th percentile to 95th percentile. And that's a level that you're gonna feel in terms of having higher energy levels, having higher libido, having higher confidence and drive uh, in terms of your ability to do your work performance, um, and also an increased ability to, to gain lean body mass. Uh, if you're lifting weights, it will accentuate your ability to essentially put on muscle and increase sports performance. These are all effects that have been validated in research studies using the medication that we use um, and actually show pretty dramatic effects. So um, it's not to say that fish oil is a worthless supplement. Like I said, it actually may have some pretty beneficial effects for brain functioning, mood, uh, and lowering inflammation, uh, which is really important um, for other reasons. But as a testosterone booster, like I said, basically anything over the counter, unless you have a severe nutritional deficiency in that nutrient, is probably not going to meaningfully increase your testosterone levels. So that's why we use prescription drugs for the most part, because that's the only thing that quite frankly works. So that's this week's unpopular opinion, is I do like fish oil a lot, especially a really high quality fish oil. Uh, I'll give you an example of one. Um, there's a one that recently became available on the market. The brand name is Avail Ohm. That's A-V-A-I-L-O-M. That actually does have a high DHA version of it, you can uh, buy it through Nootropics Depot. I'm not affiliated with the company, but it's one of the you know really high quality vendors. They actually test all of their supplements. And that's something that most people who's listening to this should know. Most supplements have terrible quality control. You can essentially never trust that what's on the label is actually in 
the supplement, it could say a thousand milligrams, might have 500 um, because the FDA doesn't really regulate supplements. So you really, it behooves yourself to buy it from trusted brands of supplements. And unfortunately, Amazon in particular is flooded with a bunch of Chinese manufactured, no name brands that do a really good job with the design, but really have poor quality assurance. The particular brands that I like and recommend, I would say in the top tier are Thorn, uh, Designs for Health, uh, Pure Encapsulations, Integrative Therapeutics, any brand that essentially sells directly to doctors like myself uh, or other uh, allied healthcare professionals tend to be really good quality because people like us are quite discerning in terms of what we recommend to our patients. Um, other good brands I would say are Jaro, Now Brand, uh, Doctor's Best, I would put in sort of that like second tier category. Uh, and then I really wouldn't trust anything else. Um, so, um, but I would say Nootropics Depot uh, as a vendor because they essentially white label their own supplements and they do their own testing. The CEO's um, pretty public like I am in terms of how they, they test everything. They have in-house analytics. Um, you know, it's a good quality stuff. So uh, uh, Avalome, um, and there's a couple other sort of trademark brands of fish oil. Um, I actually like a kind that's called Pro Resolving Mediators. It's a particular kind that's filtered to have more of um, what are these PRMs that reduce inflammation. Uh, that's the kind that I actually personally take for uh, brain health and lowering inflammation. But like I said, it's not going to change your testosterone levels. So uh, with that said, why don't we actually get to questions? If you have any questions, um, feel free to raise your hand on Clubhouse. I'll bring you to the audience and you can ask your question. If you are on Instagram, you can feel free to type your question um, or we can dual stream. And if you're on Discord, you can just chime in um, and I'll have you uh, join the audience that way. And if people are camera shy, we can always uh, refer, revert to um, some questions that people have written in from previous weeks that we have never have time to get to. All right. Um, do you want to read the one from that Diego recently posted on Discord question? Sure. From Diego via Discord, I found myself researching sunscreens, looking for a safe one. I am taking long walks almost daily in Colombia, where the UV index is usually extreme. It's about 14 around noon. I am finding concerns about chemicals and some sunscreens products due to possible disruption of the endocrine system and also due risk of skin cancer. Do you think you could talk about this on your show? Yeah, great question, Diego. So the question is around um, sunscreens, concerns about chemicals in sunscreens, and balancing that with the risk of skin cancer. So this is, you know, really gets to the heart of a lot of our philosophy, which is, um, you know, if you have uh, heard our previous podcast, I talk a lot about the testosterone pandemic, essentially, in that in the last 50 years, testosterone levels have declined by 50% in terms of total testosterone, even 65% if you're looking at bioavailable testosterone. So I always say you're not the man your father was, or your grandfather was, because they probably had twice the testosterone levels that you did. Now, part of that is because of the obesity epidemic in that, you know, 70% uh, of Americans are overweight or obese. But even when you control for being overweight, testosterone levels are still going down. In fact, we see this phenomenon even in dogs, like the very pets that we have. And so the, the explanation for what may be going on here is essentially these endocrine disrupting chemicals that are common in a lot of these cosmetic products, foods, waters, plastic bottles, and cans that we consume um, leach into essentially uh, what we consume. And they're often xenoestrogens or these synthetic estrogens that mimic the estrogen that your body produces, which as a man, you don't want too much of because it can essentially uh, downregulate your testosterone production. So uh, uh, unfortunately, sunscreens are a particularly um, you know, bad example of this because they do contain a lot of chemicals. And in fact, there was a kind of a public outcry because Neutrogena, which is a normally pretty trusted brand, I believe. I'm, hopefully I'm not getting this wrong and, and bad-mouthing them. Um, but I believe it was a sunscreen brand and it had a cancer-causing chemical um, that was found to be high in it and they actually pulled it off the shelves. And so it's unfortunate because it obviously creates distrust in the public. You're using this sunscreen you know, nominally to protect yourself from cancer and then it's actually ironically containing a cancer-causing ingredient in it. 
So what, what is a person to do, right? There's a lot of uh, Twitter bros, if, if, I, if I may, um, who are anti-sunscreen now as a result of all these uh, cancer-causing chemicals. But I think I take a much more nuanced view because every drug, or supplement, or cosmetic that you use, you have to look at the cost-benefit of it. And the reality is there is, I mean, uh, UVA, uh, light is cancer causing, right? And especially um, the UV index that you're describing, Diego, which is 14, right? So this is for fo folks that are not familiar with the UV scale. Um, this is the basically the amount of UV exposure that you get in response to sunlight. If you're ever curious, you can download an app called DMinder. It's free on the iOS store. Maybe there's an Android version as well. But you pull it out, it figures out where you are from the GPS of your phone and the time of day, and it'll tell you how much uh, UV index there is so that you can know how long you can stay out without burning your skin. And also it'll actually calculate how much vitamin D that your skin produces, which is actually a really great feature. Now it is winter time. It's obviously December 9th in most places in the world. And as a result of that, the UV index is actually very low here. So like in LA where we're filming, um, even during, you know, solar noon, uh, which is kind of mid afternoon, the UV index doesn't really go above a three. On really like warm summer days uh, where there's a lot of UV, uh, it might go up to like a 10. So 14 is actually pretty extreme. And that means that probably within 15, 20 minutes, first of all, you're gonna produce 10,000, maybe even 20,000 IUs of vitamin D, which is fantastic in terms of the benefits of vitamin D. Uh, people who are deficient in vitamin D actually do tend to have deficient levels of testosterone. And so that'll help you get back up to normal. It's really important for your immunity. It's really important for your uh, heart and bone health. Um, and uh, it actually lowers your blood pressure as well when you naturally produce vitamin D through the skin. The downside, of course, of that is if you stay in the sun for more than 20 minutes with a UV index of 14, you're highly likely to burn, depending on, of course, how much melanin or how dark your skin is. But regardless of that, even African-Americans can get skin cancer. So it's not a foolproof. It just means it might delay it a little bit. So as a result of that, if you are in a place that has high UV index or time and you're going to have a significant sun exposure, I always tell people it's actually pretty smart to use sunscreen. The, the main uh, uh, measure is essentially the question is don't ever burn, right? If your skin is becoming red, it's peeling, it's blistering, if it's doing any of those things, you're getting too much sun, it's damaging your skin. And basically, especially with every single sunburn, literally every single one that you get, you increase your, your skin cancer risk. So you should never, ever burn your skin, right? And that may mean many things. It could mean using sunscreen. It could mean obviously getting out of the sun, making sure that you're in enough shade, using hats, umbrellas, gloves, whatever it is that you need to use. Physical barriers um, are really great and underestimated. I actually think the East Asians are really ahead of Americans in terms of using things like gloves and, and hats and... Uh, visors and umbrellas and things like that because they, for cosmetic reasons, don't like dark skin. They like to stay white because they think it's really beautiful, which is ironic because in the US being tan is associated with wealth and uh, beauty. But since they have different sort of aesthetic uh, preferences, they actually use a lot of physical blockers in order to reduce um, you know, UV exposure and that skin cancer. So that's step number one. I always say like, look, if you wear um, thick uh, you know, t-shirt, hat, it'll significantly block or at least reduce the amount of sun exposure that you're getting. And that's obviously for the most part chemical free, although you know, make sure that you're using uh, natural fibers. Like cotton is always better than wearing synthetic stuff because the synthetic stuff actually ironically leaches endocrine disrupting chemicals. So that's first and foremost. However, in particular, I do think it's very helpful to wear sunscreen on your face and neck. And the reason for that is because we do know that UV exposure in addition to causing cancer, also causes premature aging of the skin. It significantly increases the amount of wrinkles, uh, sunspots, moles, and freckles that people get, uh, which most people do not like uh, to have, even guys. And so if you really care about not looking older than your age, which I think quite frankly is everyone, even if you're not particularly vain, you do wanna put it on your face and neck. Now that being said, there are two different types of sunscreen. There are what are called chemical sunscreens, um, which typically use uh, different chemical compounds that have both UVA and UVB blocking ingredients. And then there are what are called physical sunscreens, which literally block the rays of light from hitting your skin. 
Um, there are two types of physical sunscreen in particular. One is made out of, they're essentially made out of metals, uh, which are uh, elemental metals, uh, which are zinc and titanium. And so you'll see a lot of so-called natural sunscreens that use zinc. And you know, if you're a child of the 80s and 90s, uh, you probably remember zinc sunscreen. Some of them were colored. And so people put like white sunscreen on their nose. You may have seen, there's a meme of Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, messing around on a hydrofoil, which his entire face is white because he was applying a zinc-based sunscreen. Um, and uh, you know, uh, in actually a lot of countries, when I visited Costa Rica, for instance, all the surfers and even surf instructors, they just like put it on their face and wear it was a, with a badge of pride that they look all you know white, uh, <laughs> white-faced and weird, but they'd rather do that than burn their face. Um, now there are new formulations of zinc-based sunscreen that add other chemicals that essentially help it kind of blend in with the skin because that's the catch-22 of zinc. Zinc is essentially a white powder. And so no matter what you mix it with, aloe vera or any other oil, um, it's gonna have that like that white matte look on your face. Now, when you add these other chemicals, they can blend in. And I actually think Korean sunscreens in particular, they use a different rating system. So it's not SPF, but they use what's called the PA system, which is the number of pluses after the PA. So a PA plus, 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 or four pluses would be considered like a high SPF, like a 50 plus sunscreen. They do a really brilliant job chemically of blending these zinc with other things that essentially don't give you that ugly white cast. Now you have to make sort of the trade-off in your own mind of like, well, I'm adding more chemicals, but it's gonna make me look less ridiculous. Uh, what's the trade-off that's worth it? I generally think like getting a zinc-based sunscreen that has the minimal amount of ingredients in it should just generally be like zinc and usually some carrier oil like a sunflower almond or some sort of oil that obviously helps it, you know, sit on your skin. Um, ingredients that you recognize and can pronounce. You can obviously like look up each ingredient in um, uh, a database if you're concerned about the carcinogenicness. EWG.org is a really good example of a database where you can look up ingredients if you don't know what these fancy chemical names mean. But better rule of thumb is look, if you understand what it is, it's, it's probably safe to put on your skin if you've never heard it before you don't really know. So minimal number of ingredients, easy to pronounce, easy to understand ingredients uh, are really great. And I do recommend that you put it on, especially your face and neck. And if you do burn on your um, body, uh, apply it there too. A lot of people in particular actually get skin cancer on the back of their hands because your hands are basically almost always exposed, right? Even if you're wearing long sleeve shirts, uh, you do get that exposure. So I actually do recommend sometimes um, folks put on their back of their hands. And women in particular um, are uh, more often concerned about the aesthetics of their hands. They don't want sort of old grandma hands. And so if you want to prevent premature aging of the skin of the hands, it's actually a very smart idea to not just apply it to your face and neck, but also to the back of your hands as well. I actually had a, um, a mountain climbing instructor who's an ex-military Marine special ops guy, and he would either wear gloves or apply sunscreen to the back of the hands. That's actually where I learned that tip from. Um, and so even if you're a guy, you can benefit from it as well. Maybe less for aesthetic reasons, but uh, for health reasons as well. So uh, uh, thank you, D Diego, for that question. Um, I do recommend sunscreen, but you wanna balance that. Just one last thing I say with, it is great to get natural vitamin D production from the sun. And so you do want some exposed areas of your body. Like one thing that I'll do in LA in the summer is I'll put sunscreen on my face, neck, and hands. Uh, but essentially we'll walk around shirtless on the beach. I use the D-Minder app to make sure I'm not getting too much UVA and I'm not burning. So in, like I said, in the summertime, all I need to be out there is for 20 minutes. I put my shirt right back on and I'm like, great, I got my vitamin D dose for the day. I'm feeling good, uh, getting nice and tan uh, without burning. Uh, so you wanna make sure that you're not overdoing it. And like I said, any, any burning is gonna increase your skin cancer risk. And using an app is a really smart way of making sure that you don't overdo it because most people, you know, they're lying on the beach, they fall asleep, taking a nap, and the next thing you know, you're waking up and you're really red and hurting. So it's much smarter to use technology to help you because uh, you can't sort of know until it's too late uh, whether you've burned or not. All right, with that question answered, um, does anyone want to come up on Clubhouse and ask any questions? Otherwise, we can keep rolling through to user submitted questions. 
Hey, Dr. Kim, could you talk about IQ and how malleable one's own level of intelligence is and if there's any strategies one can use to increase their intelligence? Yeah, it's a really um, great question. So, um, you know, when you ask a psychologist about intelligence, we're very particular about what that means. So we're specifically referring to IQ um, or what's called sort of um, crystallized intelligence. So this is a trait that's actually quite stable. You can measure it with evidence-based IQ tests. Um, and it actually has a pretty reliable, what's called test retest reliability. Meaning that if I gave you an IQ test of when you were a kid and I tested you even 25 years later, the correlation would actually be pretty stable, pretty good over time. Meaning that it's kind of a quality that doesn't really change. Now, what determines IQ? Um, partly it is heavily genetic. If you are fortunate enough to be descended from high IQ parents, you have a much higher likelihood of um, having higher IQ. Um, there is some you know, natural variability um, in IQ. Um, and um, there is some influence of environmental circumstances. So the nutritional deficiencies that I talked about um, uh, may have an influence as well. So in terms of, you know, impeding brain development, um, that's why I actually think it is really important that, you know, pregnant mothers make sure that they're um, consuming a really nutrient dense diet. So for instance, one of the things that I talked about, fish oil is really essential for brain development. You do want to make sure that you're consuming high quality, low mercury fish and potentially high quality fish oil supplements um, in early life. Or, you know, as you're growing up, I do think um, you know fish oil can actually uh, potentially make sure that you have the the necessary substrates essentially for normal brain development and thus IQ. Now, as an adult, once your sort of like brain is like for the most part developed, even as plastic and modifiable as it is, fish oil supplements probably not going to boost your IQ. Um, but I do think there is some research that can suggest that. Um, there's not a lot essentially that you can do to significantly increase IQ. If it was that easy, I think people would be paying a lot of money uh, to be able to do that. But I think a better way of um, uh, you know positioning it is kind of analogous to testosterone where each of us is probably like a genetic set point that's sort of natural um, in terms of where our testosterone or IQ or any other like particularly stable uh, marker lies. But there are things that uh, impede it, just like I was talking about how these endocrine disrupting chemicals essentially uh, lower our, um, the genetic potential for you to reach your testosterone. There are other things that lower our, our genetic uh, potential to achieve um, maybe the, not our IQ, but the expression of the IQ, right? And what I mean by that is like, um, you know, your, your kind of fluid intelligence, your ability to perform tasks, your ability to do your job, you know, quickly to have a good short-term uh, kind of working memory. These are all aspects or components, um, ability to do calculations in your head. These are common aspects that are tested when you do an IQ test. And so there are certainly things that I think are really important for cognitive performance in general. The number one is absolutely sleep. Sleep deprivation is absolutely an epidemic in our country and our world, especially in a, you know, highly caffeinated and uh, you know, uh, way too much uh, light and blue light kind of modern world that we live in. As a result of that, people are chronically sleep deprived and there's a very clear uh, association between uh, sleep and cognitive performance where even if let's say you're a high IQ individual, if you have impaired sleep uh, you know, performance, ask any new mom or dad how they feel in terms of their ability to focus on very little sleep, no matter how smart or focused they normally are, we just can't kind of perform at our, at least our normal levels or our genetic potential when we're significantly sleep deprived. So the recommendation that I always give is try to target seven to nine hours of sleep a night, uh, seven at the very minimum, closer to eight or nine if you're doing a lot of physical, have, physically heavy uh, sports or work. Um, or a very cognitively demanding job, especially if you're working more than eight hours a day, um, you know, you may need a little bit more sleep to recover um, and, uh, you know, restore your brain. So that's number one. And then the second thing that I would actually, uh, the epidemic that I think is really key is there's sort of a, 
uh, an epidemic of attention in that our attention is constantly being stolen away. And people um, have natural genetic variability in their ability to focus. Um, you know, ADHD is a classic example of that where they have a great ability to hyper-focus on things that they enjoy, right? So things that are naturally stimulating in terms of their anticipation or excitement towards stimulate their dopamine, they can play video games just fine for hours. But if it's reading a boring textbook that just doesn't do it for them, they have a really hard time focusing. Um, so people vary in terms of their, you know, where they lie on sort of the attentional spectrum. Some people have a very easy time. As I mentioned, some folks with ADHD have a hard time on tasks, at least the tasks that are not very uh, interesting or stimulating. Now, that's the case in general, but I think in 2021, given the incredible amount of bombardment from media, social media, that's constantly stealing your attention with notifications, et cetera. If you actually have an iPhone, I highly encourage you to look at your screen time. You can go into the settings of your phone. And it, the, the data is actually like so surprising for when I work, talk about this with my clients in my private practice. Most people pick up their phone at least 50, if not 100 plus times a day, right? Now, if I asked you how many times do you think you pull it out of your pocket or your purse, you probably wouldn't guess that much, but that's the reality of how often we're ch constantly checking our phones. I'm pretty sure if someone from a different time period, a different planet came and looked at human beings, they'd be like, they all have OCD. They have these devices on their phone that they check, you know, like a hundred times a day. Now, if you think about it, think about someone who has true OCD, right? Checking a doorknob 20 times before they leave because they're not sure if it's locked. It looks kind of crazy, so to speak, uh, to someone who does not have OCD. But we almost have like a pseudo form of OCD in terms of constantly checking our phones all the time. Now, what does that do is, ironically, it makes us not just look OCD, but it makes us look very ADHD in that I think a lot of us have almost like a pseudo ADHD. I don't like using that term because uh, it's not to denigrate the actual clinical diagnosis, but it really causes a temporary or acute uh, inability to sustain or focus attention uh, because of this constant attentional switching from whatever we should be focusing on to our phones whenever we're lonely, angry, anxious, tired, bored, etc. We try to escape those negative feelings by, you know, obviously looking at our phone, maybe compulsively using Clubhouse, Instagram Live, or Discord for those of you who are listening to it. Um, but at least the good thing about long form radio shows like this is, you know, hopefully I'm sustaining your attention for at least an hour. So what's the antidote for this? The antidote for this is a practice that I uh, popularized called dopamine fasting. You can look it up if you type in my name on Google, uh, Dr. Cameron Sapa, dopamine fasting 2.0. I call it 2.0 to dif differentiate between what a lot of people, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what dopamine fasting is. There's a lot of bullshit articles, unfortunately, um, on the media uh, that ironically are you know using clickbait to distract you. Uh, from and, and catch your dopamine. Um, but the real protocol is essentially based on CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy, the gold standard form of therapy. And dopamine fasting in a nutshell is essentially to uh, gets people to not compulsively check whatever the addictive behavior is. It could be uh, checking your phone, it could be uh, uh, gaming, it could be pornography, it could be compulsive eating, it could be compulsive shopping, thrill seeking. Everyone has a sort of behavioral addiction, if you will. Uh, uh, if, if not, you know, obviously a drug or substance uh, related addiction, but we shouldn't discount that just because it's not a drug doesn't mean it's not addictive. It may not cause physiological withdrawal, but it certainly can cause a lot of problems in your life if you're overusing internet or especially sort of digital technology. So as opposed to using it 24 seven, just like sort of intermittent fasting encourages people not to eat 24 seven, we should also not be consuming, um, you know, digital stimulation 24 seven. So China actually is like instituted this into policy. Um, for instance, uh, adolescents under the age of 18 uh, are not allowed, literally the software companies shut off video games from the hours of 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. So it says like, look, at night, you can't use this. You're only allowed to use it, I believe, for two to three hours um, on weekends and maybe an hour during the day on weekdays. So they really limit the amount of use. And that is kind of a structure that I actually recommend to folks that you impose upon yourself, where it's not evil to obviously use social media. You can learn a lot on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel in which we upload these things. But I would say an hour a day 
is probably the right amount in terms of like very conscious media consumption. And then in terms of total phone usage, including, you know, messaging all your friends and family, blah, 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 shouldn't really use it for more than four hours a day um, in terms of your screen time on your phone. Uh, other than that, uh, it starts to probably become problematic. And so the best way to control your amount of time is to use uh, screen time limits. You can actually program this into your iPhone and say, this is the amount that I wanna use per day or during between the hours of X and Y, like nine to five when I'm working, I'm not gonna be able to use social media, for instance. So that's an example of dopamine fasting. And then, you know, there's dopamine feasting, which is like, all right, whatever, nine to 10 p.m., work's done, I've taken care of all my family responsibilities, I get my hour of fun, I can go nuts on social media, and then at 10 o'clock, it shuts down, I go to bed. So it's compartmentalizing or restricting the amount of social media use, and so it's not causing that constant distraction all day. And that really helps you make sure that you're not dividing or ruining your attention, which will essentially make you look or act like your lower IQ. So that's my actually, the kind of the take home message from all of this is you can't significantly increase your IQ, but what you can do is remove the factors that are essentially making you look or act stupider than you actually are, which is don't constantly distract or divide your attention and ruin your focus, which really impairs like your ability to sustain attention and focus. Um, and same thing, uh, sleep deprivation is really just like cognitively impairing essentially. So if you can do those two things, get seven to nine hours of sleep and make sure you're dopamine fasting and that you're restricting conscious uh, social media use to probably less than an hour a day or total phone usage to less than four hours a day and you're doing it at a very circumscribed time and you're not doing it all day or all throughout the day, you will essentially function at the level of IQ that you were born to have in terms of achieving your genetic potential. So those, those two things are really important tips. And then the third tip, I would say the, the third best probably behavioral intervention for cognitive performance is physical activity or exercise. There's numerous studies that particularly show if you want to slow the progression or de delay uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, the best intervention is actually exercise, good old exercise. So the, the typical recommendations that I have for exercise is try to get 7,500 steps or about 75 minutes of walking in a day. That's called sort of low intensity, steady state exercise. You wanna do some medium intensity exercise as well, and that should be strength training. Uh, men and women should be doing at least three days a week of muscle strengthening activities, ideally lifting weights or using your body weight as resistance uh, if you're doing kind of body weight workouts. And then ideally one day a week, if you are physically fit enough, you don't have any sort of joint problems or injuries to do something that's high intensity, uh, high intensity interval training, running, spinning, basketball, soccer, and they're naturally sort of like interval based sports, uh, kind of supplements uh, and provides a contrast to the strength training. Those three types of exercise should all be done, like I said, at different frequencies, which are daily every other day and once a week. And that would make sure that you're essentially very physically fit, which essentially makes sure that you're very brain or mentally fit as well. So getting enough sleep, avoiding too much distraction from digital technology, getting enough physical act, uh, exercise will essentially make sure that you're utilizing all of the IQ that you have and that your cognitive performance um, is very high. So uh, those are my three tips for sort of maximizing your IQ or IQ potential, I should say, to be technically accurate. All right, any questions uh, from the audience? Uh, feel free to raise your hand on Clubhouse if you wanna ask a question about health or performance optimization. Otherwise, we continue with user submitted questions. Yeah, do you wanna uh, ask about it? Hold on, give me one second, because you're, you're uh, are, you, are you calling from Discord? Discord? Okay, I don't know where this mic is actually coming from, but hold on, give me one second while Victor figures out where your sound is coming from. Maybe it's from, can you, can you shut off the headphones? All right, can you ask your question one more time? I think this will work this time. I noticed in, uh, in one of the tweets, not that I actually use Twitter anymore because I deleted it, it was too addictive, but- uh, Good man. You, you mentioned uh, oxytocin as a, as a supplement for, uh, for right. social anxiety. That's right. How would you go about evaluating uh, different um, services to determine whether or not they're actually uh, legitimate? And uh, would you consider uh, Defy Medical 
and that's I, I, I'm not sure if you've heard it, but before it might yeah. seem a little random, but um, yeah. how would you go about evaluating whether or not that's a legitimate company or not? Yeah, um, so the question is around oxytocin. So I'll, I'll provide a little background um, for folks that may not be familiar. Um, oxytocin is um, commonly known as sort of the, the love or cuddle hormone. Um, it's called that because it's typically released endogenously, meaning by your own body, um, uh, in times of sort of affection. So when you're having great sort of emotional intimacy, it's actually released upon orgasm. So it's a physical sort of um, a marker of physical intimacy. Um, when you hug or engage in physical touch, it's released. And women in particular release it when they are breastfeeding. Um, and so um, it is associated with sort of positive feelings um, and pro-sociability, uh, as psychologists would say. And so there's a lot of studies in which um, oxytocin is used and they kind of look at the social effects of it, uh, which is kind of what you are talking about. Um, there's a lot of psych studies that essentially like give people oxytocin um, in intranasal form. So um, oxytocin is not well absorbed orally in terms of if you take it at like, for instance, as a, a pill or a capsule. Um, it is not, uh, this poor bioavailability essentially. So it'll get broken down in the gut and you won't absorb very much of it. As a result, the psych studies essentially provide an intranasal form, meaning it's a little squirt bottle, squirt it up your nose. Um, and then it, it's actually, you know, the nose is actually pretty close to the brain. And so if you're trying to get uptake into the brain, it's actually a pretty efficient, um, uh, uh, method of administration. Essentially the downside of intranasal um, oxytocin is the half-life is very short, meaning it'll only last for about 15 minutes. So if you think about it, if you're trying to use it, uh, you know, for like changing your sort of like the, the anxiety levels that you have, or trying to be more pro-social in a social situation, 15 minutes is probably not long enough. Ironically, if you, as you can probably, uh, imagine where my point is going next, the activity that probably only lasts for 15 minutes is if you administer it right before having sex, uh, that would actually uh, probably work out pretty well. Um, what it does as a sexual enhancer is that it, it tends to, especially in men, increase the strength of their orgasm. Like I said, it's naturally released when you orgasm, and so when you when you take it uh, exogenously, meaning from outside of the body, it actually enhances orgasm. Now, there is this third form which is sublingual, sublingual or buccal absorption, meaning it's absorbed under your tongue or in your, or in your sort of um, oral cavity. They're typically sold as uh, trochies, or which are kind of like these gummies, or uh, what are called ODTs, or oral dissolving tablets. And so you just stick it under your tongue, you let it sort of melt or dissolve, and it gets absorbed uh, through your mouth. The benefit of that is it doesn't get broken down by the acidity or enzymes in your gut and it bypasses liver metabolism which uh, ruins the sort of like the oral bioavailability of a lot of drugs. I don't know if that's particularly the case with oxytocin but like I said it doesn't work orally. Um, there's not a lot of research interestingly on sublingual oxytocin because it's I guess it's a relatively newer form but I will say that drugs that typically work intranasally have a good potential to work sublingually and there is actually sublingual oxytocin that's available on the market. Now, it's not a supplement, that's the word that you use. It's actually a prescription drug, um, so you can't buy it um, over the counter. There may be some shady websites that are selling it over the counter. I wouldn't particularly trust them because uh, A, you don't know what, what you're getting is real or not. As I said, supplement companies have um, no quality control standards, but oxytocin is a very unstable molecule it actually should be shipped cold um, because heat will essentially ruin it. And so if you're buying it from anywhere, um, any legitimate place that sells legitimate oxytocin should actually cold ship it. It should be uh, with like ice packs and stuff. You need to pick it up immediately. You need to stick it in your fridge. Um, otherwise, it's sort of a volatile molecule. Um, so uh, I, I would only recommend that it's actually gotten by a pharmacy um, and it has to be prescribed by a doctor. It's actually something that we're looking into providing um, at Maximus. So I would say just be on the lookout. Um, uh, hopefully pretty soon we'll actually launch our own um, uh, oxytocin product. It's actually going to be a combination product. I'm not going to give away the formula yet, um, but it's going to be combined with 
something else that enhances sexual performance. Oxytocin enhances sexual enjoyment, and the combination is actually uh, pretty synergistic. Um, so yeah, that's why I've been occasionally sort of hinting or, or mentioning it on Twitter or social media um, uh, for that purpose. Um, I would say it's very experimental to use it just for like social or anxiety reasons. There's not enough data, I would say, that I would like, if someone came to me and said I had social anxiety, oxytocin is not the first thing that I would point to in terms of like my recommendations. Um, as I said, I think the benefits are um, mostly for like the sexual benefits um, of it. There does seem to be some pro-social, very early research in folks who are on the autism spectrum that it may help them um, as well. Um, but like I said, it's very experimental. Um, and so you can always experiment with it if you've tried like a bunch of other drugs or, or supplements, just know that you know, you're kind of wading into unknown territory here, um, as opposed to a bunch of other compounds that, that may actually have a greater evidence base. For instance, I've talked about Selexin, um, which is actually over the counter. It's a lavender extract and the efficacy, the effect size as to come for a full circle um, with this conversation for general anxiety, not social anxiety, but general and social anxiety are not too far apart. Uh, the effect size is like 0 0.85, 0 0.86, so a very strong effect size, very, very efficacious for anxiety, even better than actually some of the prescription uh, SSRIs, which are the most common prescriptions for anxiety, and doesn't have the addiction and dependence issues that benzodiazepines like Xanax have. So that's actually my standard recommendation for folks who are dealing with anxiety. Um, but if you want to sort of experiment and go beyond sort of the, the research literature, um, you know, oxytocin uh, may be sort of particularly uh, interesting. So uh, that's that's what I have to say about it. Be, be sort of uh, on the lookout, I would say, in the next couple of weeks, uh, probably January. Um, Can you spell that, Selexin? S-I-L-E-X-A-N. There's two brands that are available on Amazon. One's called Calm Aid. It's made by Nature's Way. Um, and then there's another brand, uh, which is, uh, it's made by Integrative Therapeutics. They're actually exactly the same. I think just one comes in a 30 pack and the other one comes in a 60 pack. They're pretty much the same cost, but they're all the same thing. Uh, it's Selexin is the brand name, S-I-L-E-X-A-N. It's English Lavender Essential Oil. Um, and it's, uh, it's all, it all comes from the same place. So that's actually like produced by a manufacturer in Germany. I've actually like talked to their CEO. Um, there's a lot of good studies on it. Um, now talk to your doctor. I'm not providing any medical advice, but it is, um, been very well validated in clinical trials for anxiety and it's, um, you know, doesn't seem to have a lot of deleterious effects. Now there is an outstanding question that I have around it in that lavender oil in general, uh, may have some anti-androgenic effects, meaning it may lower testosterone. Um, so I don't know, I can't vouch and say that it doesn't, but it does seem to have that mechanism of action. Um, it's unclear if the dosage, which is 80 milligrams in Selexin has that effect, but this is kind of like the unknown territory that we're walking in. As a result of that, if you're a guy, I would say it's probably fine to use short term. If you're going to use it like every day for the rest of your life, I would actually suggest that you get your testosterone levels checked before before taking it and after taking it to make sure that it's not uh, causing a negative hormonal effect. That's certainly what I would do if I was gonna take it long-term because you know it's great to like reduce your anxiety but you don't wanna reduce your testosterone either. Um, ironically, testosterone itself improves anxiety and depression. So you don't wanna like uh, trade off one thing for the other. There's unfortunately like very little literature on this. I, I know it, I just found a study that was talking about sort of the negatives of lavender oil. So just be very mindful of that if you're going to use it long-term. Giving it a probably a 30-day trial is not going to be the end of the world. Like I said, consult with your physician. Make sure there's no contraindications to any medications that you're taking. I'm not aware of any, but you can look it up and consult with your, your own care provider. Uh, but just keep that in mind in, in you know, testing things. All right, great question. Much appreciated. Um, anyone else have any questions for today? Uh, raise your hand if you're on uh, on Clubhouse and we can bring you up on the audience. Oh, looks like we got one person. Bring up Glenn. Hey, Glenn. Hi. How you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. How are you? Excellent, excellent. 
Awesome. So, quick question: uh, What are some foods you recommend to boost up testosterone? Yeah, great question. Um, so, uh, foods don't directly boost testosterone, but they provide the substrates or the foundation for your body to produce its own testosterone, right? So, there's a fancy word called steroidogenesis. Which, if you just break it down, steroid, testosterone is an example of a steroid. Most people associate steroids with obviously anabolic androgenic steroids, but uh, uh, Genesis is obviously the production of it, if you know from the book of Genesis. So, you want your body to produce its own hormones. And the uh, sort of the, the earliest part of that chain is cholesterol. So, cholesterol unfortunately gets a really bad rap because people um, associate high cholesterol levels with essentially, you know, having metabolic syndrome. Um, and this is the unfortunate confusion that was caused by a lot of public health officials that eating, eating cholesterol, what's called dietary cholesterol, like the cholesterol that you find, for instance, in eggs, causes uh, your blood cholesterol to increase. And that's actually not true. It does seem to increase your LDL, uh, which is a particular type of cholesterol, but there's actually a, a lot of research showing that that doesn't actually matter in terms of cardiovascular health outcomes. And so unless you're looking at small particle LDL or some another marker called ApoB, I would not get too distressed about a slight increase in your LDL unless it's like two or three times normal. Um, the other thing that it increases is, is HDL, what's the so-called good cholesterol. And that's actually a good thing. It's cardioprotective. And so um, there's, in fact, studies that show that people who eat like 10 eggs a day for 30 days, like I said, slightly boost your LDL, uh, boost your HDL, uh, but not to astronomical degrees, and it's actually pretty safe to do. So unfortunately, it's like a terrible thing that um, public health officials freak people out about eating eggs, like they're going to just like die of cholesterol uh, if they do that. Um, it's not really true. So the, the main thing that you want to eat to boost your testosterone levels is cholesterol and saturated fat. Now don't go ham on it and just like consume like nothing but bacon, but the best sources I have cholesterol that I would say my two favorite cholesterol sources are number one, eggs. So eggs are absolutely great. They're very high in cholesterol. They're also perfectly balanced um, as a food. If you think about it, like an egg is like a whole animal and ancestrally, People ate the whole animal. Like if you think about Native Americans who hunted bison, they ate it what's called nose to tail. Like they're not just eating the muscle meat, they're eating the organs, the intestines, the tripe, everything. And a lot of ethnic cuisines still eat, you know, heart, liver, pancreas, what's called offal or organ meat. Unfortunately, like Americans in the last 50 years or so have uh, uh, found a sort of a distaste for um, these things. Um, uh, which, you know, I, I don't blame them. Liver is not the tastiest thing, thing in the world, but I think if you grew up eating it, it's not as bad. And so, uh, number one, I would say is eggs. Number two is shrimp. Shrimp is actually particularly high in cholesterol, um, but uh, unlike eggs, which have a perfect one-to-one -one ratio of protein to fat, and so you can basically almost live off of eggs. I'm not recommending that you do, but they really are like almost like a per perfect, complete food. Shrimp is very high in protein, has very little fat, actually. Um, but it does in particular, interestingly, have cholesterol. Um, and so it's a very good source of it. Um, and like I said, it will actually increase your HDL or good cholesterol levels, which is what you want anyway. So uh, I really think that shrimp and eggs are the best cholesterol uh, boosting foods, uh, great, really solid animal-based foods, um, and very, very good for you. And I wouldn't be concerned about the dietary cholesterol significantly pushing up your uh, blood cholesterol levels. Um, I did mention um, uh, offal as well, which is if you have the appetite for it, and that's a big caveat, um, I actually think liver is kind of a superfood um, if you're willing to palate it. Uh, it's better if you just kind of like, um, you know, cook it with onions. There's, there's ways of making it taste better. One thing that I used to do that was a trick is uh, mix it with regular meat. You can make hamburgers out of it. So it's only like five to 30% liver and the rest is like just normal muscle meat. It will change the taste of your hamburgers, but you're sneaking it in. It doesn't taste too bad, obviously, once you put every other topping on your, your burger. Um, so uh, liver in particular is very high in um, lipid-soluble vitamins. Examples of lipid-soluble vitamins are, you probably heard of vitamin A, D, E, and K. The, the difference between these and what are called water-soluble vitamins, like the B vitamins, is you can take B vitamins all day if you've ever had like energy drinks like Red Bull. They're very high in B vitamins. 
they give you a temporary energy boost. You can't really overdose on them if you're taking reasonable amounts. You just piss them at it, piss it out because they're water soluble. Uh, lipid soluble vitamins, on the other hand, um, uh, some of them um, actually accumulate in the body. So, like vitamin D, for instance, as we talked about as getting it from sunlight, whether you're getting it from sunlight or you're getting it from fish, um, will actually accumulate in the body. And so, uh, liver is a really great source of vitamin A, really great source of vitamin K. Uh, and these are, um, you know, nutrients that we're often deficient in because we primarily eat muscle meat. Um, and so, uh, if there was the closest thing to a multivitamin in natural form, it would essentially be liver. Like if you, for instance, even look at how wolves or like, uh, ancestral, uh, folks, uh, hunt and eat, they're not eating the muscle meat first. They're often eating the liver first because it's considered the, the, best nutritious part of it. And they might even split it up amongst the tribe. Uh, oftentimes there's so much muscle meat that they just feed it to the dogs. Ironically, what we think is good steak, they think is like the scrap meat. So it's actually an interesting kind of like tells you about sort of the nutritional density and value of organ meat versus muscle meat. Um, that's, a, that's the other thing I would say. And then the fourth food that I highly recommend is a, is a fatty fish. Um, fatty fish is very high in the omega-3s that we talked about at the beginning of the show. In fact, for a long time, I wouldn't even supplement with omega-3s because I just try to get naturally from fish. If you eat sardines, um, a can of high quality sardines might even have about two grams, 2.3 grams of fish oil uh, and very high in omega-3s. Now, a lot of people when they hear sardines, they squirm just like with liver because they're like, oh, it's disgusting. And I think it's because unfortunately in the US there's very poor quality sardines. It's considered like literally poor people food. Uh, there's literally a notorious B.I.G. Uh, uh, lyric where he talks about having sardines for dinner when he was poor. Um, so it has that unfortunate stereotype. In reality, if you get like great sardines from Portugal, like Portuguese sardines are the best in the world. Like it's a considered delicacy there. They're, they're better quality. They're canned. And weirdly in the U.S. they're often boneless and skinless because Americans, like, like I said, I don't know, they get freaked out about this stuff. But if you get a brand like Wild Planet, that's like my favorite brand that balances sort of cost and quality. Costco sells a six pack for $9.99. So it's like a buck and some change for some sardines has 20 grams of protein, 2.3 grams of omega-3s. And it does actually have the skin and bones. The bones are actually soft. You don't even notice them. Very high in calcium. And just like I said with eggs, you're eating pretty much the whole animal. They just remove the head and the tail of the fish. Um, and so it is a super food, uh, sardines. If you don't particularly like the taste, you can mask it. The best way of doing so is buy some really good quality marinara sauce. My favorite brand is Rouse. It's like an Italian marinara sauce that has all organic ingredients. Some of the Portuguese brands will actually, instead of putting it in water or olive oil, put it in marinara sauce so it just comes ready to eat. If it doesn't, I buy like it in olive oil. I drain the olive oil, add some marinara sauce or guacamole. Guacamole does a really good job of masking the taste of sardines if you don't like it. So just throw some uh, 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 guacamole or just an, uh, I'll, I'll just bring in a whole avocado, slice it up, mix it up with the sardines and add some tahini or add your whatever your favorite uh, seasoning is. And it's actually quite delicious. So I, I would encourage people to give sardines a, uh, another chance uh, if they if they don't totally doesn't make them nauseous. But I actually think that they're actually quite delicious and quite nutritious. So to recap, favorite testosterone uh, supporting foods in terms of giving you the body, the macro and micronutrients for you to produce your own testosterone, eggs, shrimp, liver, and sardines. Those are my favorite ones. You can also use mackerel. It's, it's a pretty good alternative um, uh, fatty fish if you don't like the taste of sardines. Uh, but those those are my top four, four sort of testosterone boosting foods. Awesome. All noted. Thank you so much. Actually, absolutely. My pleasure. We'll do one last question from YouTube. Victor, why don't you read that one? Hey, Dr. Cam. I'm actually 54 and I just had what I would call a fake physical. Wondering if you had any suggestions. The physical only lasted around five minutes and they drew blood. I got decent results from my blood, but I think I need more thorough exam. What do you suggest for a 50-year-old man when it comes to a physical and what health uh, things they should be aware of? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, well, f first of all, kudos to you for actually like going and trying to get a physical done. Most people don't even bother getting an annual physical exam. I actually encourage everyone who's listening to this call, 
if you have health insurance, and it really sucks that we live in a country that <laughs> that's not standard of care, or we actually act like a third world country when it comes to healthcare. But if you do have the blessing of having health insurance, or you can pay for it out, out of pocket, it's just a really good idea for safety and peace of mind to, number one, get an annual physical. Two, it establishes a relationship with your doctor, which I think is important because you know you want to have a relationship if you actually do run into a problem and you need something. You know They know who you are. They know your face. They, they can trust you and vice versa. You know who to reach out to. So I think it's important for that reason. And I do think it's just like a, a, an important annual check. Um, it's great to actually do a blood test. I'm glad you actually got that done. Most of the time people do not get a blood test when they get an annual physical. You can talk to your doctor about what they recommend. I generally recommend a CBC, CMP, uh, comprehensive blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, uh, getting your hormones checked, getting your lipids checked just to make sure that everything is in order and also tell you if you need optimization. So for instance, like in our program, we actually do lab testing. We measure your testosterone levels, your estradiol levels, your estrogen levels, your LH, luteinizing hormone, your SHBG. These are kind of common hormone markers. Um, and then we retest people after 30 days on our protocol to show that it improves. So if you get your hormones levels checked as part of your protocol, you can see if you're obviously deficient and absolutely need testosterone optimization, or if you're just kind of at like maybe average or mediocre levels, but you want to boost because yeah, I don't know, you want to feel like you're 21 again. Um, you got it. It's really helpful to know what your starting point is, what your baseline levels is. Now, I think that that caller uh, or the person who asked the question said they were 56 years old. When you start to get into that age demographic, there's higher risks of um, uh, colon cancer, um, testicular cancer. Um, and so uh, really, as annoying as this is, is for a male, it is useful to have your prostate checked. That does mean, yep, they put on the glove and stick a finger up your butt. It's not comfortable at all. Uh, but it's good to know, you know, it's to whether or not you have an enlarged uh, prostate. So if you're having symptoms of BPH or enlarged prostate, like you're having um, very frequent urination, you're having to wake up in order to urinate, um, you have incomplete urine, like you're kind of dribbling a lot. These are common signs of an enlarged or inflamed prostate. You want the doctor to kind of check out if that's true, which they can kind of tell with a rectal digital exam, meaning they're using their finger. Um, and there's fortunately good treatments for it. So there's prescription medications um, that are used, finasteride, which I'm not a fan of, uh, which is also hair loss medication. But Tadalafil, interestingly, also is uh, actually FDA approved for the treatment of BPH, which is commonly known as Cialis or the uh, ED medication. So it kind of kills two birds with one stone, it lowers blood pressure, uh, improves ED, and also shrinks your prostate. So you want to make sure your prostate's checked. Um, and so that's important. The second thing they should do on a physical exam for men is they should check your testicles. So they're kind of feeling around and making sure that you don't have testicular cancer. That's not as uncomfortable as a rectal exam. It's just more awkward than uncomfortable, uh, to be honest. But it's an important thing. You just obviously, you know, Lance Armstrong, for instance, had testicular cancer. He had to have a testy, a testicle removed, which is really unfortunate because your testes are what produce testosterone. And obviously, most people would like to keep their balls where they are. So uh, save your balls. Make sure you get a testicular exam. And then the third thing is at above a certain age, I don't know what the latest guidelines are. Um, they do recommend a colonoscopy. They're not going to do that as part of the actual physical, but your primary care physician can make the referral to get a colonoscopy, which you should do after, you know, every couple years when you start to get into that age bracket. So those are the three things that, you know, I would look for as part of the many other things that they do as part of an annual physical, but it's the most physical or hands-on portion. Uh, in addition to obviously like checking your breathing, checking your heart, uh, the, the kind of standard stuff that people do as part of a routine physical. Those are the, the, the kind of male specific things um, that I recommend. And obviously women uh, after a certain age should, you know, uh, get, get their breast check for breast cancer, um, which you can do. You should actually learn to do yourself manually at home. Um, and then, you know, there's new guidelines for mammography in terms of getting it scanned as well. Um, so that, those are my recommendations. Great question, but take home for everyone. Get an annual physical. Uh, those are the things that you should look for as a guy and uh, ask your uh, uh, doctor if you can get routine blood work done as well. At the very least, get your blood sugars level checked because almost everyone these days, early, almost 50% of the population is pre-diabetes or diabetes. And if you're on that spectrum, you need to uh, you know, change your diet significantly. So great radio show. We went a little bit over uh, this week. 
but I guess we are getting back into it. So there's a lot of backlog of questions. You can rejoin us every single Thursday at uh, six o'clock Pacific time. And I will answer any and all questions related to health and performance optimization. If you're interested in what we're doing as a company, uh, Maximus is sponsoring this podcast. You can check us out. It's MaximusTribe.com slash Clubhouse. We made a special link for our Clubhouse viewers uh, that allow them to get uh, priority access uh, to our program. We're currently live in California and Florida. We'll be in uh, 12 other states soon. So if you're not in California and Florida, but you're interested, just sign up for our email list. We'll let you know when we launch in New York, Texas, and a bunch of other states. Uh, if you're in California and Florida, we can get you started right away. Thank you, everyone. Uh, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Cam Maximus on Twitter and Instagram, and happy to follow up with you there or join our community at uh, discord.maximustribe.com. That's discord.maximustribe.com where uh, we have a whole discussion forum all about diet, exercise, sleep, focus, testosterone optimization, and we do a daily coaching uh, program in there as well. All right, be happy, be healthy, and I'll catch you all next week.